Who comes up with these games anyway? My name is Jonathan, and this is the Snakes Cast, the podcast for people who don't know as much about board games as they'd like to know. This week, we're joined once again by Justin Gary of Stoneblade Entertainment, and he's going to help us find some answers to that question, which gets asked around the cafe a lot more than you might imagine. Welcome back to the Snakes Cast, everyone. Most of our patrons at Snakes and Lattes Board Game Cafe are people relatively new to the whole tabletop game thing. They've only never played Monopoly and Guess Who and maybe Cards Against Humanity. So when I introduce them to modern games, they're often kind of in awe. They're, they're amazed by these creations and they can't imagine the kind of mind that could be behind them. Often they ask me, who makes these? And they sound actually kind of unsure of how such a person could even exist. So this week we're going to demystify it a little and bring it to a human level. And we're very lucky to be joined once again by game designer Justin Gary. Justin, thanks for coming back. My pleasure. Now, you're most well known for your work on the game we talked about last week, Ascension. But today I'd like to talk a little bit about what makes a game designer. You, you know a lot of people in the industry. What would you say distinguishes the game designers from most of humanity? What makes them unusual as people? <laughs> well, we're we're pretty weird on a variety of levels, but uh, I would say probably the main thing that um, you know distinguishes game designers uh, from just game players is that we're very interested in the systems that bring about the experiences when you play a game, right? The how is it that these systems themselves? It's like it's like people who would uh, traditionally take apart you know a VCR and try to figure right. out how it works, right? Game designers try to take apart game rules in the same way. Why is it that I have fun when I'm trying to top deck the card that I need, or when I roll the dice and land on you know go? Like, what is it about that experience that brings about the joy, the connection, the different types of things, the fear, the excitement, the anxiety that come out of gameplay? And how do you manipulate those rules to create the experiences that you want? Sounds like on the Myers-Briggs scale, you'd be out on the N end of things, the intuitive end. More interested in the why and the how, and not so much the who, the what, the where, the when, the details. That's that's exactly right. And, and when I think when I see a game, you know, it's kind of like uh, you know, sort of the Matrix style, right? You see the right, you see the code system, see the code. Like, how does this system bring about the experience? It's not about you know the ice cream in your hand. It's about what molecules went into making that thing exactly <laughs> as delicious as it is. So were these traits that you've always had since childhood, or did you develop them later as an adult? It's interesting. I, I you know, I think some of the answer is some of both. Um, mm-hmm. I think I've, you know, I've always wanted to sort of figure out how things work and, and kind of, I've been, you know, I, I channeled that more through the competitive side. I mean, I used to be a professional Magic the Gathering player. I was a uh, mm. U.S. national champion when I was in high school and became world champion, uh, world team champion later. And That's going to require some serious analytical chops. Yeah. So, so when it came to like working within that system and saying, okay, how do I break this? Right. How do I make sure that I'm better <laughs> than everybody else? Uh, that was kind of my first exposure to it. Uh, it took a little bit of learning and a little bit of, of, of training for myself to become further, not just like how do I understand the system so that I can win, but how do I understand the system so that I can make the game fun? And what is it that makes the experience enjoyable is a, is a different, that was a shift I had to consciously make later on in life. Hmm. What, can you talk a little bit about where the initial interest came from? I mean, were, were your parents very uh, interested in getting you to explore? Did you have a teacher who inspired you to really look into the underlying uh, uh, whys behind systems? You know, it, it was, uh, I think just the, the sort of trying to understand systems is something that kind of came from me early. Both my parents were lawyers. Um, I actually went to law school for a little mm-hmm. while before I became a game designer. Um, I, you know, and that is a lot about like just sort of being analytical and understanding how the system works. 
Um, and so that kind of part was always there, but it was, you know, again, I, I mean, that, that professional magic playing experience was really transformative for my life. Um, because I traveled around the world, I met all kinds of people, and I really was able to see that from a very young age, like, okay, I could make a living being, you know, with games. And then it came down to like, well, okay, if I do, what is it I want to be? And I considered, you know, being a professional poker player or going into the finance markets, which is a very similar model, but actually creating things and making games and making joy for people uh, ended up just being a more compelling path. And when did you decide that you wanted to design games professionally? Was there a moment when it was like, all right, I'm going to make a go at this. I'm going to try to make my living at it. Or was it more of a gradual dawning realization? Oh, no, it was a very clear moment and, a, and one of those really challenging choice points in life. So the way this goes down is I am finished my first year of law school at NYU. I'm doing well, but I'm pretty miserable, to be honest. Mm. And instead of getting a internship at a law firm that summer, I got offered to do an internship at a company called Upper Deck in Carlsbad uh, in San Diego. And that was to work on the Versus System trading card game. And the idea was because I was a good card game player, they wanted me to kind of help break their game and figure out how to fix it and that kind of thing. And that basically was becoming that, that path to becoming a game designer. And, and I, that summer I worked on it. I found I had a good talent for it. I really was helpful. I enjoyed the process. And at the end of the summer, they said, listen, if you want to leave law school, there's a job here for you. Oh, so you didn't have to do a day job while you were, uh, while you were fleshing out your life as a game designer. That's amazing. Yeah, so I, I'm very fortunate in that sense, but uh, let me tell you, that was still not an easy decision. I mean, I bet. My, my, my it's been really scary. My mom literally cried when I told her I was leaving law school to uh, <sighs> to be a game designer, you know, and it was it was not an easy choice, but it was the best decision I ever made in my life. You, what, you decided to focus on making people happy, including yourself. Yep, that's right. And that following that passion is the thing that I've, uh, you know, I owe most of my happiness today to. And, 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 you know, the happiness of tens of thousands or even, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that have now had a chance to play my games or play games that were influenced by the things I did. It's, it's a very rewarding experience. Now, considering how uh, difficult it is to make a living as a professional game designer, I imagine that that must also be a sort of a commonality among designers. They're more interested in making people happy and living with their passion than they are with getting rich. Yeah, it, it, it's it's definitely a common thread amongst everybody that I know in the industry is that you're here because you love it. You're not here because you want to get rich. Um, yeah. Obviously, it'd be nice to be rich. I'm not saying, sure. <laughs> you know, if everybody listening to this wants to buy a copy of Ascension or two, I wouldn't complain. <laughs> um, but really, it's like if I can just do what I'm doing and be comfortable in my life, I will be very happy. There. Okay, so you've got the idea. You decided to make it happen. Um, walk me through the process of a game's creation from the initial, we should totally do this to it actually being on store shelves, being able to play it. What's, what's the process? Yeah. So I, I, I'll try to cover as much as I can here. Uh, Obviously we don't have that much time on the podcast. I really (laughs) urge anyone, anyone that's interested in this, uh, go to justingary.com. Uh, you can start with how to become a game designer is the first article, uh, I wrote on there, but I, I I write articles every week. I talk about the process in detail, exactly how you come up with an idea, how you process it, how you prototype it, how you iterate, how you get it published. All of that is all on there. So, I'll, uh, but I'll go into it in, in short here. Um, so, you know, really, the this it all starts with inspiration, right? What is it that you're motivated for? What is it that you want? What experience do you want to create? Um, and usually that can come in just like one core idea. So like Ascension is the game I'm most known for. It was literally like, wow, I really like the deck building game. 
Dominion, but I want it to be more of a dynamic experience that changes all the time as opposed to static once you set up the board. That was it. That was the core inspiration. And then it was like, all right, how do I do this? And then you, and, and the, the secret, I guess, for most of you out there that think this is like some magic mystery behind the box process is <laughs> don't try to do everything all at once. Don't try to make something that nobody's ever seen before. Start small. Start with something that's taking something that you, taking something you like, taking another thing you like and combining them. And that's, that's really at the heart of creativity is you just take two ideas that already exist and combine them in a way that they haven't been combined before. And then you can kind of evolve from there. Uh, and so I, I very much encourage what, you know, what I call the core design loop, right? You get inspired, you set the parameters for what your deadlines are and what you're going to work with, brainstorm ideas, then prototype it as fast as possible, get it in front of people, test it, test that core idea, and then take your learnings and then iterate and do it again. And it's that looping that process over and over and over again is the act of being a game designer. That is it. There is nothing else. What about the publishing end of things? Uh, how, where do you begin once you've uh, once you've got your brilliant work and it's you've, you've iterated on it, you've brought it honed to a gorgeous diamond of a game? How do you get it from there to actually becoming a physical object that people can buy? Where do you begin? Yeah, so there's a few different routes to go. Um, you know, there's the getting it published by another publisher, um, which means you need to go in front of publishers, which you, which you should start by researching the games that are similar to the game that you're making and the companies that make them. Try to figure out where those companies are going to be, ideally at conventions, so you can meet them in person, uh, and then try to be, you know, to pitch your game. I have an article on my website about exactly how you should pitch your game. In fact, Fantastic. Um, then the other path is if you want to self-publish a game. Um, self-publishing a game, there's a variety of um, resources available online for doing uh, print-on-demand services, if you want to do small print runs, um, or you can start reaching out um, to you know larger printers to do bigger print runs. Um, those can get expensive, um, so I, I recommend you know being pretty sure about where you want to be, and then things like Kickstarter are wonderful uh, tools to be able to make sure that you know there's an audience for your game before you spend a lot of your own money. I mean, I, I when I first made Ascension, I I literally spent all of my life savings to get the game made, and I printed wow. I printed ten thousand units, which is a lot of units for a game that has not. Yes, had it is. And it's a hell I, of a gamble. Yeah, I I mean, I really was joking with people often. That's like, well, if this doesn't work, I'm going to be building my house out of Ascension boxes. <laughs> but you know, I I got I got lucky, and I got you know things things went well, and and I I went and I if you're gonna do a launch like this, you know, you need to have a presence at a convention. Um, I think Gen Con is where we launched. I think that's a great one for people in the U.S. and doing hobby board games. Um, but I don't necessarily recommend that path to everybody. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's just uh, I'd been in the industry a long time before I made that play. You know, I'd been I'd been working for other companies. I knew who to reach out to. I knew what to do. Uh, and so it wasn't as risky for me as it would be for someone out there that hasn't has never made a game before. Um, but I do think, you know, you want to take that chance and it, you want to be able to build something small for yourself, do some print on demand services, build a, a, a you know, prototype or two, make it fun for you and your friends. And then once the game is awesome, then, you know, publishing is really, everybody wants to know about publishing first, and it's the, but the first important thing is make a game that's so awesome, you can't help but make it. You've done quite a bit of collaborative design, working with John Furillo and others on Ascension, and even the legendary Richard Garfield himself on Soulforge. Uh, tell us a bit about some of the benefits and challenges of collaboration in game design. Yeah, so obviously, um, you know, collaborating with people who are brilliant is has intrinsic advantages, right? <laughs> working with Richard Garfield, the guy that created Magic the Gathering to create our digital card game Soulforge, 
uh, S-O-L-F-O-R-G-E, which you can download for free on iOS, Android, and... Uh, Links in the description. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so it is, uh, it is uh, amazing, and, and you can, you know, get ideas that you would never come up with. You can get your ideas tested uh, really fast, right? You know, I talk about prototyping and iterating and testing as part of the design process. Mm-hmm. When you are working with people at a very high level, you can much more efficiently, like, prototype in your head, run through a test, and then iterate that way and working with somebody that's brilliant will, they'll catch things that you wouldn't catch. So you can kind of just move through that cycle really, really fast. Um, so that's a great advantage of working with, with, with really smart, talented people. Um, the challenges, of course, their ideas don't always match with your ideas. You know, if, if you're <laughs> the only one designing a game and you think, you know, you should do X, Y, or Z thing, then X, Y, or Z thing happens. Uh, when you're working with a team, even when you're leading the team, um, you know, I'm CEO of the company, so I could say, oh, this is it, this is what we're doing. But that's not how creative process works, right? You need to be collaborative. You need to find what's going on behind the positions and find out what the values are and the goals are for each side and then work towards those, right? So it could be I say, oh, you know what, I think that number needs to be a five or I think Fireball should have, you know, may, you know, Mages should cast Fireballs for free. The other person says, no, I think it needs to be a six or I need that, you know, Mages shouldn't, should have to pay for Fireballs, whatever. Don't, don't entrench in the position that you have. Figure out what's going on behind that. So it's like, okay, well, I want fireballs to be free because I want to make sure the mage does something every turn. And you want fireballs to, to have a cost because you want to make sure that there's variety in what they do. So it's like, okay, maybe the answer is the mage gets one free action every turn of a spell. And there's a variety of those that they can pick from, right? And so, so you can find the solution that's not the position that either of you had, but actually achieves the goals that you both have in the background. So collaboration uh, in large part is about not letting yourself fall prey to not invented here syndrome. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly. And, and, oh my God, is that a thing when you're, you know, we work in a team with a lot of brilliant people here, uh, Gary Arant, Ben Lundquist, uh, John Fiorello, Nick Fiorello, his brother has been coming, uh, an up and coming great game designer. Uh, we, and so it's a lot of like ideas back and forth and everybody's bouncing around. And so you don't even know who came up with the idea. You know, when, a lot of times we'll be talking about, yeah, who came up with this mechanic? And I'm like, um, maybe me, uh, maybe this other guy, I, you know, like, lose it because it's, it's, it's little bits here and there. There's a, there's a great story. I'll, maybe I'll come on another time as we get closer to releasing, uh, this new Ascension set. Um, Gary Arant was the lead design for this set, but, and he created a really great core mechanic, but there was like just something missing. And then, uh, and then Ben suggested this one, one small change to it that turned it from just, yeah, this is kind of okay to, oh my God, this is so much fun. This is perfect. You know, and it's like that. That collaboration is, is wonderful, but you really do need to let go of ego as much as possible. I know this is easier said than done, but it's the yes. big <laughs> and, and, and communicate, communicate, communication is more about listening, uh, and understanding than it is about trying to get your point across. It's important to get your point across, but you really should reflect back what you hear the other, your collaborator say. This is, by the way, a great tip for life and relationships also. Yes. Uh, this is not just game design. Seek uh, to understand first, then seek to be understood. I guess a fellow reader of the Seven Habits. I love it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so really, literally, just reflect back in your own words what you've heard them say, and then as a you know, and then try to reflect back the principle behind what they're saying, uh, and then say what you're saying. It makes the world just a much better place. If everybody would just do that, I think we would stop wars. We would stop marital strife. <laughs> we would stop. I mean, really. But for now, let's just focus on game design, collaborative game design, and it will make your life a lot easier. 
So electronic adaptations of board games and electronic games that are heavily influenced by board games are becoming more and more prominent. You're at the forefront of this emerging fusion between the tabletop and the computer. The Ascension app and Soulforge being prime examples. Where do you see the intersection of tabletop and electronic design going in the next few years? That's a great question. You know, I think uh, we, you know, we have, we're, we're trying to be, I think the, the fun that is tabletop gaming, there was a fear back in, you know, the early 2000s that that was going to disappear because mm-hmm. you were going to have the digital games and all people were going to want to do is play mobile games and play digital games. But in fact, the exact opposite has happened, right? Board games are bigger than ever. We have great things like, you know, board game cafes like Snakes and Lattes. We have one here Yay. in San Diego called Tabletop Commons. Uh, and it's, it's the, the social nature of board games of sitting around a table and, and playing a game together is something that's really valuable. And we're realizing that as a culture, there's no better bang for your buck entertainment wise than playing a board game with some friends, you know, having a drink, hanging out. Like, that's just a great core experience. <laughs> and so mobile games are, and, and digital games are uh, a supplement to that. And they're a, they're a way to let me play. So I can play Ascension now in five minutes on my phone while I'm waiting in line, as well as sit around the table with friends. And so there's that convenience factor. Uh, and so that's one of the areas where we're going to, we, we see an emergence. Then there's also the, um, the social connection factor. So Soulforge is designed to be just a digital card game. One of the problems with playing a collectible card game in general is like if you don't have friends around that can play and have their own collections, it's worthless, right? All those yep. cards that I have for my whatever, you know, Vampire the Masquerade TCG are pretty much worthless because <laughs> nobody around here plays. But with an online game, I always have opponents. I always have people I can play. Uh, and so it really helps to build communities in a global scale. Um, and so that's a huge component of, of where things go. And also we get to do mechanics that like, are impossible or at least very impractical in physical games, right? In Soulforge, every card levels up as you play it and changes throughout the course of the game, which is super cool and super fun, but oh man. And there's no way you could do it on the tabletop. Forget it. Yeah, I've done it when I prototyped and playtested, and it was incredibly painful. <laughs> little slips of paper and sleeved cards. and Ugh, so, No thank you. Yeah, so, so you want to look at the advantages of each system, right? So in, in, in when it comes to digital, it's convenience, speed, takes care of tracking, allows for some, you know, non, you know, non-spatial things that you can do, like leveling cards and hidden things. Uh, and then the table subside, you have the social, you have the kinetic component, right? Shuffling a deck of cards, moving miniatures around, um, seeing the board laid out in front of you. Uh, and so you want to be able to find more and more connections that, that bridge those gaps and get the best of both worlds. Um, and there's a variety of specific designs and specific ideas that I've been working on. We have a new game called Labyrinth, which is a more of a combination of a tactical RPG miniature style game, uses some of the elements from the World of Warcraft miniatures game I made, as well as you have a TCG deck for each character, um, which again would be impractical in real life, but creates a lot of fun uh, when you're playing it digitally. Over the course of just a few years, board game cafes have become a prominent new element in the industry. They're bringing what used to be a very niche sort of hobby games to a much wider audience. Has the arrival of board game cafes on the scene influenced your thinking on game design at all? Um, yeah, it, it has, actually. I mean, you know, this is something that's actually really, really common in places like China. They're all over the place. Mm-hmm. It's, it's now that it's starting to spread in the U.S., I think it's it's wonderful. So as someone who likes to, uh, you know, hang out in cafes and uh, play games, uh, now it's glad to see that more mainstream. But I've been building a lot more games that are very fast and very easy to learn and very uh, social. So my uh, newest game we released last year called Bad Beats, that's B-E-E-T-S, um, is a, a game about eating your vegetables, and it's like a quick 10-minute bluffing game. 
Uh, really fun to play. You can play, you know, up to five players. Uh, it takes five, ten minutes. Uh, it's inspired by games like Love Letter and Coup. Um, and that allows you to have this, like, social, primarily social experience, uh, more things that require deduction and player, getting to know the other players. Like getting um, inside their heads. Right, exactly. Like more social mechanics. Um, Code Names is a great example of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the more uh, uh, profane uh, Cards Against Humanity is a very popular game. <sighs> uh, it's, you know, I, Apples to Apples is the originator of that mechanic. Uh, uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I like to have things that have that strategic side and that 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 we all love from you know traditional hobby board gaming but still have some of that social components that's where games like bad beats i think really shine um so yeah any other upcoming games you're working on we should be watching for yeah absolutely um we're gonna have a big announcement um in about a month um for another game that's again another sort of fast to play card game very social um and uh i i can't give you the specifics of it right now but we'll be actually announcing it at the gamma trade show uh, coming up uh, in the uh, middle of March, and we'll be doing a Kickstarter uh, for that probably um, in a couple months also. So please keep an eye out. All right, that'll wrap it up for this week. If you'd like to hear more interviews with game designers, tell us. Tweet it to us at SnakesCast or post on the Snakes and Lattes Facebook page. Justin, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. Awesome, my pleasure. The Snakes Cast is produced by P.T. Douglas. Music is provided by Ben Sound. The opinions expressed on the show belong to the people in it and not the company behind it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Game on. Game on.